Hi, this is Mike McClellan, one of the lawyers for employers at CC Partners. CC Partners has been a proud member of the Barry Construction Association since 2019. We have had the opportunity to contribute information and content to the BCA's daily news and annual publication. A lot of that content has focused on workplace law in the construction industry during the COVID-19 pandemic. Recently, my colleague Kelsey Ortha and I had the privilege of giving a live presentation to other members of the Barry Construction Association on COVID-19 vaccine policies. We recorded that presentation, and here it is, as episode 26 of the Lawyers for Employers podcast, brought to you by the Lawyers for Employers at CC Partners. Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. A couple of things we're going to take a look at. Uh, Obviously, we're here to discuss... COVID-19 vaccine policies, which is a real hot button issue. Uh, in fact, I was talking to Bryony before we started and mentioned just in the last week and a half, we've had three labor arbitration decisions come out speaking about various different issues on COVID-19 workplace policies, all coming to different decisions, but also probably all correct because this is such a, a, a context and circumstance specific uh, issue when we're talking about workplace policies. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about a little bit about you know, the vaccines themselves, kind of the, the introduction of this idea of having vaccination policies. We know that not too, too long ago with the government actually mandated certain sectors have COVID-19 vaccine policies We'll take a look at the uh, current Ontario regulations uh, regarding COVID-19 workplace issues. And then we'll get into kind of the important stuff, the lessons from our recent arbitrations and how employers can create a valid and enforceable COVID-19 vaccination policy, uh, kind of the, the principles and the factors to keep in mind. And we'll finish off with a Q&A. That's always my favorite part. So we're going we're gonna to hopefully have a, a good amount of time at the end to do a Q&A. Uh, so any, any questions or ideas you have, and I've already got a couple of ideas and questions that I want to ask all of you as well. Um, so, so we'll have a good discussion at the end of the presentation. As you can imagine, as lawyers for employers, we've been really busy trying to keep our clients up to date on how to run a business, how to deal with your workplace during a pandemic. And, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the outbreak, or, or I guess the first lockdowns happened in March of 2020, and the first vaccines started being available in December of 2020. So that's a nine-month uh, uh, spread. And basically, as soon as word of a vaccine came, our phones were ringing off the hook. Well, how can we make sure our employees get the vaccine? And, you know, the, the truth is, you know, at the time, the answer was, well, you, you don't really, you know, we can, we can put certain things into effect to, to make it easier for the workers to get the vaccine, to make it you know, kind of enticing 
for them to get the vaccine. But there were so many things we didn't know yet. We didn't know who was going to be able to get it. We didn't know when people were going to be able to get it. We didn't know how effective the vaccine was going to be. And then as time went on, we started learning that these vaccines were very available. Everybody over the age of 12 could get them. Um, we learned that, yeah, when you get it, you might need a couple of days to recover because it'll make you feel kind of crummy. But other than that, they're rather safe. And in fact, the, uh, uh, the, the fourth wave of COVID was deemed by the medical community to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So all of a sudden we had this kind of general employment law principle that you don't try to encourage or force your employees to undergo medical treatment, which technically the vaccination is a medical treatment, to, well, it actually might be a part of proper uh, employment management and, and frankly, occupational health and safety to have a COVID-19 vaccine policy in place that really encourages people to go get vaccinated. To the point where the federal government said, hey, guess what? All of our employees are going to have to be vaccinated in order, in order to come to work. The provincial government didn't go that far. What the provincial government did is they said, if you're running a workplace in these sectors, you have to put together a policy. But all of those things combined really kind of shifted the legal landscape of uh, a vaccine policy from that's, that's really beyond the scope of what an employer does to this is squarely within the scope of what an employer does. So let me hand it off to Kelsey now. I don't get the fancy lapel mic, so I'm going to hold the mic like this. <clears throat> but uh, as Mike mentioned, in Ontario, they didn't go as far as the federal government in terms of mandating vaccines, but they did mandate vaccination policies in certain industries, right? And we all saw with everything that happened in the long-term care homes, um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic and uh, how that was addressed, um, you know, leaving aside criticisms or, or thoughts as to whether or not they went far enough, what the government did was said, uh, people in these industries, the healthcare, long-term care, home and community care services, and then childcare and education, you have to come up with a policy. Now, important to know that that's not the same as mandating vaccines for everyone in this industry, which was called for by various um, authorities, experts, and so on. But what it did was say, okay, employer, you have to come up with a policy and the onus is on you to make sure that that, that policy is a proper one. So um, near the end of August in 2021, the Ontario government amended uh, Ontario Regulation, regulation 364 um, and made certain rules for areas at step three of the roadmap, roadmap exit step. And, and if we recall the, the whole roadmap thing that was going on at the time, um, you know, you had to progress uh, through various levels. And at first it was province wide, and then they made it, uh, you know, they adjusted for regions. And we've all been all over the place with all of this. So this is not to, to rehash everything that, that we've gone through. But the interesting uh, part about what they did with the regulation was that they said, Anybody who's responsible for a business or organization that is open, so first you had to, you know, you had to be at the appropriate step as decreed by the government, but then if you're open, then you have to make sure that you're in compliance with your local health officers. 
So, uh, I mean, the criticism of the, the provincial government was that it was downloading or offloading a lot of these things um, to either, you know, kind of municipal subgroups or uh, employers themselves. And, you know, you talk to, um, you know, for instance, I have friends in the restaurant industry who said, just, just tell us what to do. Like having to make the decisions on our own is, is leaving everybody upset, right? So, um, but, but what this regulation did is it said, okay, you have to follow these recommendations. Whatever the recommendations of your local health authority are, you need to follow them. And um, you also need to make sure that you set out your own precautions and procedures included in your vaccination policy, right? So it's not just the original COVID policies that everybody had and, and was left to their own devices, but this is now, okay, well, you need to follow the health recommendations. And if you're going to be open and have a vaccination policy, you've got to make sure that it, it meets all these criteria. So you know, whether this is legally binding is an interesting question. And we haven't yet seen whether um, you know, that will be ever decided. But because of the, you know, as I said, the, the offloading or the downloading of responsibilities from the provincial government down to other municipal groups or, or you know, kind of health authority groups, um, it's not really sure where the, the true legal weight lies. Um, that doesn't really matter for our purposes today, just a little bit of background. <clears throat> so, and the reason we're going through some of this background is to provide kind of the context for the vaccination policy discussion that we're going to have with respect specifically to um, you and your industry in the construction industry, right? Because it tells us, you know, as Mike said, it's context specific, but when we look at what the government did require, that's going to be the first place that adjudicators look to determine whether or not you've kind of taken the, the right path here, right? So in those prescribed sectors that we identified, they said, here's what your policy has to have. You have to Get your employees, it's, the, the first step was disclosure, right? Immunization status disclosure. So you have to get your employees to identify one of three, essentially three statuses, right? They've either been fully vaccinated or they're in the process of being so and have a date um, to, to be vaccinated. They have a medical reason for not being vaccinated against COVID-19. And interestingly, it was specifically limited to medical reason and didn't address um, it didn't require you to address human rights grounds, although we'll, we'll address that. Um, or you had to complete a, a COVID-19 vaccine educational session. Um, and they left that up to individual employers to determine what those were. So the other aspect of it was that anybody in those prescribed sectors who did not provide full proof of vaccination against COVID uh, had to undertake regular rapid antigen screening or testing, right? And in addition, anybody who was doing that testing uh, was advised or had to be advised that their data would be collected anonymously and all that data with respect to the screening has to be submitted on a regular basis um, to the appropriate health, health authorities. Excuse me. So... For instance, that's what's in place now at long-term care homes, right? There is, as we know, they're not required to be vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, then at the very least, you have to be doing screening procedures or screening tests, sorry. 
We're at, we're at the fun, fun part already. So as Mike mentioned, in the last week, week and a half, we've had three decisions come out, right? And so this is, you know, from our perspective as lawyers advising employers, now we have some concrete, you know, what we rely on, our, our, our precedents to be able to you know, kind of guide our clients and our, our, uh, our employers through the process. And thankfully, um, you know, you'll see at least one case here, Paragon Protection, where they had a mandatory vaccination policy and it was upheld by the arbitrator. Um, Ellis Dawn, very relevant to, uh, to our discussion today, their testing program was upheld, right? And then the Electrical Safety Authority, their policy was struck down, although not without some fairly strong comments from, from the arbitrator in a, in a number of respects. And then OPG had kind of a, a mixed bag result. And what these tests or what these cases will tell us, as you'll find out as we, we go through them in a, in a little bit of detail, is that the context is everything, right? And, and we've got the background, the kind of foundation for what the policies require, but how far you go or, or what specific aspects you choose to include in your policy, um, the enforceability or the kind of justifiability at, you know, if, if it gets challenged from a legal per point of view, uh, those are going to be very much dependent on what your specific context is. So, Mike, tell us about the Ellis Don case. All right, so the Ellis Don case, uh, I'm a big fan of this case and, and good on Ellis Don for wanting to be an industry leader and figuring out how they're gonna deal with the pandemic in the workplace and make sure that they stay operating and, and productive. So this decision actually came out back in the spring. Uh, it's the oldest one and it's still a really new case. So in May of 2021, this decision came out. Ellis Dawn uh, had entered into a, a pilot project with the Ministry of Health, essentially testing uh, a rapid test for COVID-19. And, and kind of the idea from the ministry's perspective is, is this the test we should generally be using? And so Ellis Dawn and uh, its forming uh, contractor, Verity, Verity Structures, uh, you know, joined, joined up on this, on this policy that was every morning when you come in, or sorry, I think it was a couple of times a week when you come in, you have to do the, you know, the 15 minute, you know, at rapid antigen test. And, uh, you know, the, the policy held that if you test positive, you had to go home. If you refused to take the test, you weren't allowed to on the site that day. The context here was it was being run in, in, when the grievance, sorry, the, the, the project on which the union grieved uh, was a downtown Toronto uh, high-rise residential project that was really in the kind of open-air stages still and you know the employer and the union had worked out certain precautions already things like staggered start and end times uh, social distancing making sure the the workers were wearing PPE um, so you know, they had already taken precautions with you know varying levels of success there had been a couple of outbreaks on the site uh, but for the most part they were doing all right so the union says well you know what do you think you're doing uh, forcing our members to take these tests you know you're, you're making them do a, a nasal and throat swab uh, that's that's invasive 
we know you're not allowed to do that for random drug and alcohol testing, so what makes you think you can do these medical tests uh, on our people, uh, especially in the circumstances that it doesn't seem to be particularly warranted? And, you know, the, the employer, and the employers in this case, disagreed. They said, you know, this is absolutely uh, an important part of our duty to keep a healthy and safe workplace, and ultimately, the labor arbitrator agreed with the employers. The arbitrator dismissed the grievance using a balancing of interests approach. So the other arbitrator said, yeah, there is some invasion of privacy here. There is some collection of medical information, which under normal circumstances would never fly. These aren't the normal circumstances. We are in the middle of a pandemic. There have been outbreaks on this site before, notwithstanding that it's an open air site, which is less likely to be a, an environment for transmission, notwithstanding that we've been taking steps to socially distance and wear masks. Uh, you know, the objective of the policy outweighed the minimally invasive effect on the individual workers. And there was a couple of really interesting comments that the arbitrator made too with respect to their circumstances, including that, and this is something that we deal a lot in construction labor relations, is this notion that the construction industry is largely transitory in nature, which means that our workers are not necessarily going to one building, one workspace, day after day, five days a week, 48 weeks a year. No, they're going from place to place, site to site, project to project. And for a lot of them, they're going from employer to employer, moving around, following the work. So, you know, just think about what that means in the context of a pandemic. If you know our, our one site is being <clears throat> safe and we're not having outbreaks, that's great. It's really great, but the people aren't being you know steady on one site permanently. They're going around to different sites. Uh, you know, you, you could be on you know a dozen different sites in a month if if that's what the work calls for, and if you're not you know, testing, and this is before vaccines were expected to be widely available to everybody, there's an absolute risk of going around and infecting people on each and every site that your worker is traveling to. The other key was that this policy incorporated third-party health professionals taking the tests or administering the tests. There really was no concern about privacy. The information was being collected properly. It was being stored and then deleted properly. So again, the arbitrator said, we do, well, let's, let's take a look at this with a balancing of the interests involved. It's a minimally invasive policy and the benefits are just too great. So this testing policy was upheld and that really started to give a roadmap for other employers to look at in terms of what are the circumstances and contexts and the factors of a policy that are likely to be upheld as reasonable in the circumstances. Fast forward to, I think it was last week or, or the week before, um, a new case came out dealing specifically with a mandatory vaccine policy or vaccination policy. Um, we, as Lawyers for Employers, were thrilled to see this one come out because we do have a number of employers 
in either the prescribed sectors or otherwise who have um, decided that for their business, a mandatory vaccination policy is, is what's required and what makes sense. And so when we see this case come out, um, it kind of justifies that, that position in terms of saying, yeah, you know what, the, uh, the risk that you took in implementing a mandatory policy, as long as we can justify it in the ways that match up with this case, seem to be uh, you know, justified risks as well. So what happened here was uh, Paragon Protection Limited or Paragon Security uh, has something like 4,500 employees um, on various sites throughout the province. And they implemented a policy mandating vaccination by the end of October. Um, now, you know, there's a lot of detail in the case about where the policy came from. A lot of the sites on which they had already had vaccination policies, so they're you know, responding to their own clients' requirements or requests as well, which may be something that we're dealing with um, you know, in the construction industry also. Um, but in terms of establishing the policy itself, things to note, the policy provided alternatives for employees who could not get vaccinated as different or differing from employees who would not get vaccinated and they'd just be subject to the existing progressive discipline practices. And the reason for that is essentially we're talking about a policy that the employer has implemented and non-compliance with the policy, with an employer's policy, typically leads to discipline. So the union says, well, that policy is unreasonable. You're asking too much. And the arbitrator in this case said, no, I, I think this policy is reasonable. And it's again that balancing of interests that Mike referred to, which Mike referred. And it's the rights of employees who choose not to be vaccinated and the right and responsibility of the employer to keep a healthy and safe workplace, right? And you know, without referring specifically to it, we're talking you know, in a general sense, but also in a very specific sense about your obligations under the Occupational Health and Safety Act to take all reasonable precautions to make sure that your workplace is safe for your employees. So um, a couple of other aspects specific to this policy were that it specifically complied with requirements that were already in the collective agreement with respect to inoculations, and that was um, that people who could not be inoculated would be provided alternate uh, work sites or, or at least that would be looked for. And that kind of matched up with how they, they implemented the vaccination policy. And then the decision also confirms, um, as we've heard from both you know, statements from the Human Rights Commission as well as uh, positions taken by most employers, that there's no human rights protection, despite what kind of letters you might see floating around the internet or might have gotten in your own workplaces from people um, you know, telling you that you've infringed upon their human rights by either requiring vaccination or by requiring them to use a mask. Um, that's not an actual code if you choose not to be vaccinated, uh, a code protection. This was, you know, this is very encouraging, as I said, and, and it's context specific, right? Because we have, similar to the, the kind of potential scenario that Mike described, we have all of these workers across the province who may or may not be on the same site, same idea, and they're client facing, right? They are having interactions with the public, not necessarily all the time, but as a general rule, 
this policy was reasonable and, and struck the right balance between employees' rights and the you know kind of overall. I should mention as well there were some comments um, in favor of vaccination generally and the, you know the science behind everything that the arbitrator set out at the outset that kind of support a, a kind of more paternalistic approach to employee uh, regulation than you might otherwise see at arbitration, for instance, in the kind of drug testing uh, cases that Mike uh, mentioned. So, And then two days later, another arbitration decision came out that went the opposite way. Uh, powers worker, the Power Workers Union filed a grievance against the Electrical Safety Authority. In this case, the employer implemented a well, they had previously implemented a vaccine disclosure and testing policy, which seemed to be working pretty well, but then they decided to amend the policy, as employers do from time to time, to make it a mandatory vaccine policy. And under this new policy, employees had to be fully vaccinated by October the 31st, or they risked being put on an unpaid leave, and they also risked discipline and potential discharge from employment uh, if the employee fails to be vaccinated. The purpose behind this policy, in addition to simply encouraging or, or uh, making it an incentive for th their workers to become vaccinated, was that there were some workers that would have to go to client or customer sites or, or third-party locations which may have their own mandatory vaccine policies. So the employer thought this was the way to go and once again the union grieved that this was a violation of the employees rights to privacy and to their bodily integrity. One thing that really stood out in this case was the employer had a COVID-19 policy in place that did not mandate vaccinations. They decided to change it to mandate vaccination. And as the arbitrator observed, nothing happened to make that switch necessary. Nothing happened to indicate that the disclosure and testing policy was not working for this employer. So when there was a balancing of interests in this case, the arbitrator said, look, you had a vaccine disclosure and testing policy, just like the Ellis Dawn case. And you kind of just decided unilaterally without a real uh, convincing reason or cause to, to make it more onerous on the employees to make it so that they had to go undergo uh, this, this medical treatment. The arbitrator was, you know, granted the, the uh, grievance in part, remitting it back to the Joint Health and Safety Committee saying, take a look at this policy again. The obligatory discipline and discharge has to come out, but, but go back to your Joint Health and Safety Committee and figure out what you actually need in these circumstances because a great number of the employees had already been vaccinated. Most of the employees who were not vaccinated were complying with testing. 
most of the employees who were not vaccinated were able to work from home. It was true that some people had to go to customer and client sites or third-party premises for work, but there were enough vaccinated people to assign that work to the fully vaccinated people. So there was no real harm to the employer that needed to be remedied by making sure the entire workforce was vaccinated. The arbitrator said specifically, just, just the quote here, disciplining or discharging an employee for failing to be vaccinated when it is not a requirement of being hired and where there is a reasonable alternative is unjust. So that was a real key in this case. The, the few people who were not vaccinated, there was still work that they could do while maintaining health and safety in the workplace. There was an easy enough way for the employer to rearrange and reassign work that the potential harm could have been mitigated easily enough. Now, having said all of that, this arbitrator did have the benefit of reading the Paragon case that came out just two days before. And what this arbitrator said was, yeah, those were different circumstances. That arbitrator was absolutely right to uphold that policy. They had a collective agreement that it complied with on all fours. They had a situation where remote work from home wasn't happening. These are people who have to go face the public as part of their job. That was the right decision for that case. In this case, it just happens to have different circumstances. So you can probably get the main theme that we're trying to get across to you today is when you're looking at implementing your own COVID-19 policy, we really have to look at the specific context and circumstances of your workplace. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, Mike. And it's almost like, are you more like Paragon or are you more like the ESA, right? Um, or somewhere in between, and that's where we, we work on the, this, the nuances, right? Um, another testing case that, that just came out is the Power Workers Union and OPG. And here, the employer implemented and started enforcing a vac vaccine disclosure and testing policy. So not mandatory vaccination, but disclosure and testing. And interestingly, the union didn't grieve the policy itself, but only certain elements. So the employer said in their policy, we're not gonna pay for these tests. We're not gonna pay you for your time. Um, that's all on you. There is an alternative, get vaccinated. You don't have to do that. So if you're choosing not to, then all of these consequences are, are your own. Um, the other aspect that the union didn't like was that if you didn't comply with the policy, you were placed on an unpaid leave. And then after six weeks on that unpaid leave, termination. So the union said employees should be both paid for their time and reimburse the cost of the tests. And the employer should not be able to uh, end these people's employment just because they haven't been vaccinated or they're not complying with the policy. <clears throat> so, and this was a, a kind of split decision, we'll say. Um, the arbitrator said, yeah, the employer's fine to have people do the tests outside of their work hours and doesn't have to pay them for that, um, nor for any of the time that they have to, uh, to take to report them because that's, that's a result of their choice. However, 
because it's the employer who's requiring the test, it is reasonable for the employer to pay the cost of that test. Um, that's the testing aspect of things. The consequences part, which is, you know, kind of, again, encouraging for employers is that, yeah, absolutely, there can be consequences and the employer's consequences here were reasonable in terms of first placing the employees on an unpaid leave if they refuse to undergo the testing. And if they're still not going to be compliant, then they can expect that those disciplinary terminations are likely to be upheld. So, you know, specific comments from the arbitrator saying that, you know, it, it makes sense for the employer to have the employees do the test on their own time, but, and then they don't get paid for it, but the employer's requiring it, you've got to pay. Uh, in terms of the being placed on unpaid leave, he's looking at the workplace as a whole and saying, look, most of the workforce is vaccinated, the rest are complying with testing, so in the circumstances, this seems like a minimal intrusion, and you know, especially in the circumstances of the pandemic, this is an appropriate, uh, appropriate balancing. Um, and it's entirely within the employee's control to choose whether they are going to be eligible to return to work, right? There's not, it's not like the employer is forcing them to, you know, not even forcing them to get a vaccine or jump through other hoops, right? Um, and the, the kind of quote was, I view this as a sensible and necessary part of a reasonable voluntary vaccination and testing program. So, you know, it's a matter of, and I'm relating this to other clients and, and other employers who've asked these questions, um, you know, what is reasonable and why can we do some things and not other things? And, you know, we've, we've harped on it a bunch. It's all about um, context, right? So in this case, very reasonable approach from the employer as decided by the arbitrator. So I think now we're going get to get into creating a vaccination policy. <clears throat> so as we know, not all the workplaces are, as of yet, required to implement a policy. At the same time, no one is prohibited from implementing a policy, and it has to be what makes sense for your workplace. The general principles with respect to establishing a policy, right? Everybody knows employer has a right to establish and implement policies from time to time that regulate the workplace and introduce rules and that have consequences, right? Um, in order to do so in a way that will be justified and that an arbitrator in the unionized context or adjudicators if challenged in, other, in, in a different forum uh, will agree that you've, you've done things the right way. There are six principles and these come from an old case that we just call KVP. Um, it was KVP Co. and uh, the Sawmill Workers Union from I don't know, 1963 or something like that. Um, so here are the six rules. It can't be inconsistent with the collective agreement. It can't be unreasonable. So you hear when, when, you know, when we're citing the arbitrator's reasons and they're saying this is a reasonable policy, this is a, a reasonable balancing of interests, that's where it's coming from. They're linking it back to this test, right? And, and, and sorry to interrupt, Kelsey, but that's really where this kind of balancing of interests come in, right? So, so when you hear an arbitrator say something like this policy is minimally invasive to the employee, 
and it serves an important legitimate objective, that's kind of what we're looking for when, when we're looking at this a little bit hard to define concept of what is reasonable. Right, and so it has to be clear and unequivocal. You have to bring it to the employee's attention. So some kind of notice of an implementation period uh, is required. And you also have to make clear what the consequences are. And uh, you know we deal with that all the time in a sense that employers may have other policies that just kind of sit in the background and, and employees don't know necessarily either about the details of the policy or what the consequences are. So if you're introducing a policy that's either about vaccination or testing or some combination thereof, we need to be clear about what the consequences are. Is it going to be an unpaid leave? Is it going to be termination? Is it going to be an unpaid leave and then termination? What is going to happen if someone doesn't comply with the policy? And then finally, you have to be consistent with the enforcement. You can't pick and choose against whom you enforce the policy or against whom you, you levy discipline, subject to, of course, human rights considerations, um, you know, a specific medical exemption, um, and, and you know, limited circumstances where alternatives can be offered um, for some types of work but not others. But that's not, you know, that, that doesn't mean we're not being consistent. That just means if you're going to have different categories, they have to be uh, not arbitrary and have to have valid reasons behind them. Um, so we've identified here eight key components. And I guess, first of all, how many of you already have uh, a vaccine policy in place in your workplaces? Okay, so a few. Um, and I mean, we'll, we'll get into the, the Q&A part later, but what we've identified based on those principles and based on you know what we know about the way policies are either challenged or upheld uh, through the legal process is that these are the eight things you need to identify. The scope of the policy, to whom it applies, is there a time limit to it, anything like that. What is required? So here's the clear and unequivocal part. What is required of your employees as a result of this policy coming into force? Not only what is required, but by when. So deadlines are a huge part of these vaccination policies because we have a timeline by which people need to be vaccinated, a timeline by which they may be placed on unpaid leave. And you see that six weeks all the time, and I, I'm sure everybody can guess. Six weeks is essentially you know, the kind of leeway that people give for being able to get both vaccinations. So if you haven't been vaccinated yet, the reason that most of these employers are picking six weeks is that that can reasonably be said to be an appropriate and adequate amount of time for somebody who is non-compliant to bring themselves into compliance. So going back to the decisions that we talked about, you know, if it's up to the employee to choose to be eligible, we have to make sure that they have enough time to be able to get themselves in compliance in order for that policy to be reasonable. What are the supports available? So, you know, is the employer going to provide tests? Is the employer going to provide time off to go get vaccinated? Is the employer going to provide the education session in, that, in those other sectors? Or are the employees on their own to get it? Those kinds of things are the supports available. What happens if you're not vaccinated? What's the first step? You know, can you keep testing? Is that, you know, is that something that will only go on 
for a limited amount of time before everybody is expected to be vaccinated in order to keep working? Or do we have alternate work available for you? Those kinds of things have to be addressed in your policy as well. Consequences of non-compliance, we've talked about that. Um, unpaid leave, disciplinary, one and then the other, or simply just you know, leave them out there, what, whatever you want to do, but it has to be identified. And then you have to address any privacy considerations. So if you are conducting the testing program and you're required to remit the anonymous statistical data with respect to how many tests and how many tests come up positive, um, that has to be known as well as how and what you're going to do with the information um, that you're collecting as an employer. And then obviously a contact person to help administer or enforce the policy. We just want to take a bit of a closer look at a couple of these key elements of the policy. Um, you know, Kelsey gave a, a good overview, but a couple, a couple of these warrant just a little bit further comment. Actions required. So at minimum, you're going to need to know your employee's vaccination status. And as Kelsey mentioned, the option should be fully vaccinated not vaccinated yet, uh, but it will be, or not vaccinated yet because I can't be, and not vaccinated and I choose not to be. That's what I mean by disclosing the reasons if a person is not fully vaccinated. Uh, if somebody is not fully vaccinated because of a medical reason, uh, which should happen very, very rarely, we have the information from the medical community now that these vaccines are by and large safe. There are, you know, allergies or heart conditions, and that's about it right now that are kind of the accepted medical reasons not to get the vaccine. Uh, another one which we were preparing for, but hasn't come up a lot is religious reasons. Uh, a lot of the major faiths have come out publicly to say, please go get the vaccine. So we are going to be very careful when somebody says there's a religious reason why I can't take the vaccine. If somebody does raise an issue like a medical reason or, or a religious reason, we have to take a view of that objection with respect to the Ontario Human Rights Code. Somebody who has a protection under the Ontario Human Rights Code is entitled to accommodation up to a certain point. And that's the point of undue hardship. In order for them to be accommodated, they have to be forthcoming with some information. They have to be forthcoming with some support for why they say that they need an accommodation. If they say it's a medical condition, we need a, we need a proper note from a proper doctor or a, or a medical practitioner. If they say it's a religious reason, I'm not saying that I don't want to take that in good faith, but in order for, for me to understand whether you are actually entitled to this accommodation or even what the accommodation could be, I need to know a little bit about why you're saying that you have a sincerely held religious belief that prevents you from getting the vaccine. So I might be asking for something like a document from your faith leader as to why you are disqualified from getting a particular vaccine. Is there an alternate vaccine? Is it the mRNA vaccine that there's an objection to? but we can go the more traditional vaccine route, the AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So 
These are all, this is all some information that we need disclosed up front. The other actions that may be required after we get this information is, now if somebody discloses they're fully vaccinated and they provide you their vaccine passport, that should pretty much be it. And, and by and large, that's what we're going to experience with our, with our staff. But other things that may come up include, do we need to have a testing protocol in place for people who either cannot or will not be vaccinated? Or are we just in one of these particular environments where anything short of being vaccinated could create too much of a health and safety issue, too much of a hardship on the business to continue? Um, there, there may be those cases, and they haven't come up quite yet, but there may be those cases where an employee needs to be vaccinated in order to keep their job. The other, you know, another, another element we spend a lot of time on when we're drafting these policies is what do we do with our unvaccinated workers? Like I said, generally these come into two groups. People who have human rights exemptions, which are, again, exceedingly rare, and, and basically all others. People who haven't got around to it yet or people who don't, just don't want to take the vaccine. And we're going to treat those people a little bit differently depending on the circumstances. Um, you know, Kelsey mentioned, you know, a lot of these policies build in kind of a six-week deadline, and that, that's important for people who, for childcare or family care reasons, maybe haven't had the opportunity. The longer and longer we go through this pandemic, the less, you know, the less likely that is to be an excuse. Uh, but that's something that we have to consider in the policy. And then the other things we have to consider is, do we have alternatives for people who cannot or will not be uh, vaccinated? Um, you know, testing is, is the one that is clearly acceptable if it's done properly. But if for whatever reason, you know, testing isn't the answer, do we have alternate work for the person? Do we have remote work for the person? Are your person on the site? Probably not. A payroll administrator? Maybe. Uh, a clerk? or, or uh, you know, someone more administrative, maybe they can work from home. Or they're not, <clears throat> or they're not exposed to other employees uh, or, or members of the public. And we have to lay out what happens if the employee does not become compliant with a policy. Again, if there's a human rights reason why they cannot become compliant, we have to take a look at accommodation. Accommodation is a really interesting uh, aspect of what we do. Accommodation is a process. Accommodation doesn't just mean we found an alternative, here it is, you're accommodated. Accommodation means we have to look at what options are available. What can we do that you are still going to be performing productive work in a safe manner that still respects your human rights circumstances. And then, you know, we may be looking at things like, if there are no alternatives, can we put you on an unpaid leave? It's not a termination, it's not a layoff, it is, you're in a position where you cannot do the job you were hired for. When you become vaccinated, 
or you become compliant with a policy, okay, we'll put you back to work. Or when public health says we no longer need the vaccines or the testing, then you can come back to work. So that's a, a very common aspect of our COVID-19 vaccine policies. And one that doesn't necessarily have to go into the policy, uh, but can be something to consider is termination from employment. This is more applicable in your, for your non-union workers. If you have somebody who just cannot or particularly will not be vaccinated, and it is becoming intolerable in terms of the hardship it's putting on your business, and they're not subject to a collective agreement, you as an employer have the option to terminate their employment with the proper notice or pay in lieu of notice, okay? That's gonna be different for each employee based on how long they've been with you and what kind of job they have and their seniority and their level of responsibility. But for a non-union employee, that is an option to be able to terminate them, um, not on a just cause basis with notice because they are not, will not, or cannot comply with the policy. So speaking of that discipline and the discharge um, aspects of things, getting into consequences, especially in the unionized environment, environment excuse me, <clears throat> we talked about it before, the non-compliance with an employer policy, just like any other policy, can certainly lead to discipline where we're not sure or where we don't know unless we analyze the specific circumstances of each particular employer is whether the policy itself is reasonable. So that's the, you know, those are the two steps. Is the policy reasonable? If so, then yes, the consequences are reasonable, are going to be reasonable because otherwise the policy itself wouldn't be reasonable. So when we're talking, especially if we're talking about the disclosure, the testing, PBE requirements, those are all pretty basic, and I think the case law has shown us that, at a minimum, those things can easily be put in place by employers right now, and you know, very little chance of, uh, of that being struck down as unreasonable. Um, when we're talking about the placing people on unpaid leaves of absence, uh, mostly we're looking at where there's no alternative, right? Um, you know, it, if you're going to take that mandatory vaccination stance, uh, you also have to look at, are there any alternatives? And, and if we're justified in taking that mandatory vaccination stance, then we have to identify, as we said, what the consequences are so that unpaid leave of absence should probably be the first step, even if we are thinking about discipline as the next step. And then obviously, you know, are there, are there alternatives within the job site or within the company and, and whether that works or not is going to be totally dependent on how your operations uh, are managed from a day-to-day -day basis. And then of course, if we're talking about a human rights element to it, we're never going to discipline on that basis. Um, as Mike said though, those circumstances are very limited and you are entitled to push back and probe for more information as an employer anytime not just in this context of vaccination, but anytime uh, an employee is looking for accommodation 
in the workplace. Certainly, you as an employer are entitled to ask for more information if, if it's not clear on its, on its face, uh, whether it's a religious accommodation, uh, accommodation for disability. Those are the two most common, especially um, you know, not even in the vaccination context, but in general, that's what we see most and what we end up advising employers about. I, I actually go a step farther on that point, Kelsey. I think the employer has a duty to seek out more information, not just a right. The duty to accommodate largely rests on the employer. It is a cooperative process, so the employee has a duty to cooperate. But in terms of exploring what is an appropriate accommodation in the circumstances and the duty to propose uh, possible accommodations really rests with the employer. It's the employer who faces liability if they breach this duty to accommodate. So what I always tell clients is if you're going to do your duty properly, you need to be equipped with the right information, and reliable information, so that we can properly consider what is an appropriate accommodation in the circumstances. Yeah, and we, I mean, we've, we've done whole day sessions on the duty to accommodate, and it's not, not an easy thing to deal with, and it is very contextual um, in its analysis, but Mike, you're right, uh, the duty to inquire is right up there as the first step in your duty to accommodate. So, you know, getting back to, to this, and, and we've only got uh, this one and, and I think one more slide left, but we're starting to ask the questions, right? If you're going to establish a vaccination policy, what do you need to think about in establishing, in, in trying to come up with something that is going to be reasonable, right? So, we saw what the factors are. You know, is there an element of public interaction um, it was the work indoors or outdoors because that limits our, uh, you know, if it's indoors, that limits our ability to distance to a certain uh, respect. It also changes, as we know. Um, you know, we've, we've been conditioned uh, over the course of this pandemic to understand that outdoors is, is less risky. Um, and so perhaps you can have different measures in place outdoors. Does the project owner have its own vaccine requirements to which your people are going to be subject, right? And, and if so, are you going to have a policy that has different alternatives depending on where people are, are stationed or where they work? Um, is there any alternate work available? Or instead, can we do testing instead of just vaccination or in concert with vaccination? And then the other things that you know, Mike identified in that very first, um, very first case that came out in the testing um, testing phase. Sorry, uh, are there other ways to mitigate risk or mitigate transmission through distancing, masking, shift staggering, all those kinds of things? And none of these things are necessarily mutually exclusive, right? All of them should be practiced. We all know that you know the more measures we can take, the the safer we make things for our employees and for everybody else who, who comes into contact with them, either on the work site or, or otherwise. Um, but those are the things you need to have in mind as you're deciding what kind of vaccination policy do I need. So that is our presentation, and we'll open this up for questions. Uh, I wouldn't mind asking a couple of questions to kind of kick things off. Uh, we've got some time. Um, so, I, I mean, I wouldn't mind hearing from all of you 
What are your biggest concerns right now about COVID in your workplaces? Yeah, so, so the question is, if you have a predominantly vaccinated workplace, what do you do when you're hiring on new people? Can vaccination be a requirement, a condition of, of uh, a new hire? The answer is yes. And, and I think the, uh, uh, one of the cases, I forget which one, but specifically mentioned um, or, or alluded to, um, you know, as, as part of the hiring process, you can say that a condition of employment is being fully vaccinated because this is this is what we do. We go into government buildings where government is requiring people to be vaccinated to have access. There may be, uh, uh, you know, maybe maybe different ways to to ask. Uh, you may want to give a conditional offer of employment rather than risking a potential human rights issue. Uh, but this is certainly something that you can you can work around. Um, you know, again, you may want to consider if somebody says, "Well, I can't meet this condition because of a medical reason, but I'm I'm willing to do the testing." Is that something that's that's uh, appropriate in the circumstances? But um, it, it's been a a feature of the policies I've drafted that all new hires must disclose a fully vaccinated status. Yeah, just to be clear, that's part of the consistency, right? If you're implementing a mandatory policy, then obviously new people coming in get less consideration in terms of the, the leeway for coming in, coming up to compliance, right? You're not going to give somebody who's newly hired the same six weeks you might have given people at the outset of, of your policy to be uh, to be compliant, right? So. Absolutely, Mike's right, and the same thing. Same for me. Every policy that I have drafted dealing with vaccination, um, mandatory vaccination in particular, has said new hires got to be compliant. And how how are you all finding your workforces in terms of cooperating with the measures you've put in place? Because I've been hearing a little bit of conflicting reports from different sources. Of some are having great success that everybody's you know, disclosing their VAC status and wearing their masks and social distancing. And I'm hearing other people saying it's really tough to, to monitor and enforce these uh, rules. So, so what are you all finding and, and how are you successful in, in enforcing your, your policies?
Kelsey, what do you think? What's a good way to uh, <laughs> do some enforcement for the sub-trades? Yeah, and so there are a whole bunch of factors that come into that, right? We talked about collection of medical information, and with your own employees, you've got your system in place. Um, you know, Presumably, you have personnel files, and then separately from that, you, you keep health information, or at least technically separate. Um, but do you really want to be collecting that health information from people who aren't your employees, the answer to that is no. Um, can you be no, but can you be requiring proof to enter on a job site? Sure. So just like you know, anywhere else um, that's allowed to be open and, and you know, we're allowed to do things like this, that vaccine passport is, is a way for a kind of general entry because you're not keeping any of that information, right? The attestation form is another way to do it. Um, it's, I would say, kind of more open to manipulation um, than, than an actual, you know, screening of the vaccine passport. But it, you know, it, it may be what you can do in the circumstances. Um, I mean, there's the, the gold standard, right? And then there's, you know, what might make sense in terms of, you know, to your question about from a due diligence perspective, what's going to protect you, I guess, is because you know, there are two aspects, right? Is like what's going to be safe, the safest for your employees, as well as what's going to protect you as an organization from any potential liability, which I should mention, I mean, I think we all anticipate that there's going to be various types of litigation because people are litigious about COVID and how people got it and, and whether things, enough things were done, whether it's grievances from unions, whether it's um, individuals filing lawsuits, all those kinds of things. I mean, for the most part, the, the loudest voices so far have been the, the kind of naysayers and so on. But um, I, I suspect that somewhere in the next little while, people will start bringing claims about you know, having caught COVID due to somebody else's negligence, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so one thing I've been advising my construction clients, whether they're generals or subcontractors, uh, is in the subcontract, have a clause about the subcontractor implementing and enforcing their own COVID-19, at least screening policy, if not a testing or a vaccine policy. As a matter of due diligence, that's something you can do. And then, the, you know, the due diligence flows with it. The, the general contractor has their own, uh, uh, you know, duty for due diligence as an employer to make sure that they are taking all steps appropriate in the circumstances to prevent workplace hazards. And that includes, a, you know, a COVID, an infectious disease. So they really do need to be taking care of that. They're sending people to sites uh, who are fit, who are fit to work, but you know that I think is is kind of a practical uh, uh, response. Is is make it a condition of the contract that if you want this contract, if you want to come, you know, if you want to win this contract and come do the work, uh, a condition is you have to send people who are who are healthy and safe to do so, and you have to make sure of it. I mean, I. I the ideal or the, the perfect way to do it, I'm sorry, 
perfect is, is not the right word, but what you would possibly have is that obligation and then you know, a kind of double check from, in terms of protecting yourselves, a double check first day on the job site for anybody, vaccine passport, do you do? Now, can you do that? Should you do that? Are you know, potentially two different questions, but if you have that responsibility baked into the contract, then you're just doing, you know, you're just in, ensuring that the terms of the contract are met. And so first day on the job site, that person identifies and then presumably they're self-screening the other days and if any symptoms show up, they're, you know, they're disqualifying themselves and whether you have, because there are so many different ways and systems in place. And uh, you know, I was speaking with a client the other day and they're essentially a subcontractor, not in the construction business, but their client has its own screening policy and they're requiring my clients guys to do the screening policy which is exactly the same as the uh, screening policy that my client has in place but the two can't be used for the same purpose because each employer has its own purpose right so it's a matter of figuring out what works for you from a practical perspective, but if you've at least established that requirement through the contract, then you know, you've know you got some protection from a liability standpoint. And presumably, if the people you're working with are trustworthy, then they're not gonna be violating those things. And you know whether you go further to confirm when someone's arriving on the first day or every day or how you do it, that's you know kind of up to you. We've got a question over here. So the question is, is it a requirement to have a written COVID-19 policy in construction? It is not a requirement currently. That could change in the, you know, if there's a fifth wave, for example. Uh, it's not a requirement. We recommend it. Um, you know, keep in mind that under Section 25 of the Occupational Health and Safety Act, every employer has that responsibility to avoid workplace hazards to the extent possible. Uh, you know, having some rules regarding uh, COVID is, is going to help you discharge that responsibility. It doesn't need to be a written policy. It's certainly a lot more effective if it's a written policy. Yeah, over here. Their choice, their choice has consequences. That's, I mean, it's the simplest way to say it, right? And because the testing, it's, it's for asymptomatic, right? You can't do the screening if you have symptoms. If that's the case, you gotta go get PCR. And there's no point for vaccinated. So it, it would be different if we were saying PCR testing, because that can be anybody who has symptoms, right? But the screening is literally for asymptomatic individuals who have not been vaccinated and the alternative is get vaccinated yep. right so i mean no adjudicator in any forum is going to uh, have any sympathy from a 
you're infringing on my rights or anything like that uh, kind of perspective for that for that argument. Yeah, it. it Well, for the employees, sure, they can do whatever they want. They'll come to the manager and say, we think this is a health and safety issue. And then it falls on the manager to figure out how they're going to address it. Uh, does that mean we have to keep people separate? Does that mean some people get to get to or have to work from home? Yeah, that's up to the manager to kind of figure that out. Um, in terms of the, you know, the, the unvaccinated person pushing back on testing, well, I mean, that's why we took a look at that Ellis Dawn case and then followed up with that second uh, uh, power workers case, the OPG case. Uh, testing is, is pretty much accepted as a, a pretty legitimate way to keep the workplace safe, uh, especially if you've got a workplace where people have to work together, have to collaborate, have to be in person. Yeah, absolutely. Testing is, is okay. And, you know, I don't want to sound... Uh, unsympathetic, but in terms of those unvaccinated people, you know, who have to be subject to testing being singled out, yeah, you kind of are being singled out. So doesn't it make a lot of sense to just go get the shot so you're not singled out anymore? Um, I know that that's my perspective on that, and and frankly, that's I'm the not worried about sounding unsympathetic. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about specific things here, right? We're we're not talking about, and it's very clear this is not a a basic human rights thing. This is a choice versus and the, the good of the workplace and your coworkers. And this is what we've we've learned. So um, you know that I like I said, and many adjudicators, most adjudicators, if not all of them, would not have sympathy because before the law, now we see that this is, as Mike said, very reasonable and and so on, right? And again, that's different from not being able to. This is choice and not wanting to um, you know, abide by the restrictions and restraints that come with making a different choice. So, oh, we've got one in the, Ryan, either. Excellent question. If an employee is on unpaid leave because they're non-compliant with a COVID vaccine policy or COVID testing policy, can they collect EI? So Service Canada came out recently with guidance on how to fill out an employee's record of employment if they're non-compliant. And I think what they, I, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I might. I think it's you either coded K for other or N for leave of absence. After that, I don't really care. That's between that employee and Service Canada. Uh, and that's our general advice for employers. Don't, don't, you don't need to get involved. You're not directly paying the employee. That's between the government and that employee. And I, I, there's, there's, there is, in, in some strange cases, there's a little bit of downside to getting involved in that, and there's no upside. So, so yeah, um, so that, what the government website specifically says is not actually even K, which is the other category. 
When the employee doesn't report to work because they refuse to comply with your mandatory COVID-19 vaccination policy, use code E, quit, or code N, leave of absence. So depending on whether you've uh, you know, made it unpaid. And when you suspend or terminate an employee for not complying, use code M for dismissal. So that to me says, fat chance EI is paying you. But we're never going to give advice to employees about whether or not they can get EI. As Mike said, it's almost never worth getting into that, no. uh, that sphere. So it's just about after 1 o'clock, which was our end time. I don't need to go anywhere right now. I'm happy to stick around and, and, and talk to people and answer some questions, but I don't want to hold anybody hostage because I know you're probably all busy too. Uh, so I, I think at this point, we'd just like to say thank you very much again for having us. It's great to get out of the office and, and uh, come see our, our friends and clients in Barry and uh, uh, appreciate your attendance and your feedback. And uh, yeah, Kelsey and I can stick around a little bit longer. Yeah, thanks everyone. Thank you.